0: The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. Today on the Heinemann Podcast, Empathy. In Sara Ahmed's book, Being the Change, she writes about how empathy has become a buzzword and its practice tends to get lost under high achievement goals. And in their book, Kids First from Day One, Christine Hertz and Christy Moraz write, you think that being an empathetic teacher is just part of the gig, but in the heat of the moment and the stress of the job, it's easy to want kids to see it from our point of view rather than to see it from theirs. Yes, empathy is a feel-good idea, but there's a lot more to it than that. In today's podcast, we've brought together authors Sara Ahmed, Christine Hertz, and Christy Mraz to discuss empathy not as something we have, but rather as an ongoing daily practice that must be prioritized in our minds and actions. Our conversation begins with keeping empathy focused on the kids. So, Sara, where you start to write about empathy is sort of almost a perfect companion to where Christine Christine start to write about empathy. Sarah, you start off by saying how It's really written into mission statements, but then it's not really always acted upon and it just sort of becomes a buzzword. And you both really, all three of you, really hit on this idea that empathy needs to stay focused on the kids and that you have to do the work yourself. And it's really about perspective and it's about point of view. So it seems as though people have a hard time sort of even defining or understanding clearly what empathy is. When they're so busy, kind of making it a buzzword.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I actually, I marked those pages in our books too, and you guys have it on, <laughs> you guys have it on eight, and I have it on X. <laughs> <111. laughs> um, but I actually, I had, a, a, I underlined something in your book. I was just looking at some of the parallels, and you guys both wrote about it. It's the last sentence of your first paragraph and under the empathetic teacher, and it just says, empathy is a feel-good idea, but there's more to it than that. Teresa Wiseman, am I saying that correctly? Her four attributes of empathy is what you guys go into in the toolkit, because I started thinking about the differences and the parallels to the age with kids in kindergarten, first and second grade, and then middle school and high school, and what those four attributes look like.
2: She Teresa Re- Wiseman has these four different attributes of empathy, um You know, it's almost like a how-to with empathy, and we thought about this when you're in one of those moments with a student in your class where you're trying to connect and so first step that she has is to take their perspective and so really try to imagine what it must feel like and for younger students it often means like physically getting down to where they are and being able to look into their eyes and then asking them to say more about what's happening and so instead of rushing to judgment which is so easy to do as a teacher to think like No, the fact that your favorite pen just ran out of ink isn't a big deal. We got to get going. It's time for P.E. To really honor the fact that for young children, some seemingly small things are actually big in their world and for older students some things that we might dismiss because we've seen it a hundred times like a fight with a best friend at recess or trying to negotiate a triad of friends again in their lives and in their world these are huge milestone moments and so once you have used that judgment and not judge them rather than, you know, going to and recognizing the emotions, which touches on a lot of the whole brain child work by Daniel Siegel, talking about like making it more of a narrative to help them connect and work through those emotions. And then, you know, saying that this is the, you know, this happens, um, let's make a plan for moving forward and communicating and connecting. Those are kind of like, for quick how to uh, use empathy in the moment. And and that I think we've both started to use them more and more with young children.
1: Yeah, I, st- I was looking at them and then I started wondering about my own writing and I was thinking, God, am I contradicting this when I'm talking? Because I started thinking about, um, I'm thinking about my own middle school experiences and then what I used to do to kids by just being like, put yourself in their shoes like almost without without listening first you know like put yourself in their shoes like how would you feel and i i have been quoted probably now saying like you can't just ask kids to like put themselves in people's shoes without sort of all of this work and the process and the background right so i can't just say put yourself in someone else's shoes and now i'm asking even adults like to sort of without getting proximate like you can't do that right so getting putting yourself in someone else's shoes is getting like one step closer to proximate. Reading a book is like getting one step closer to proximate. And so I love this framework that you have in here. And even the language that you guys use, um, it's helping me working in an elementary school now. Cause I've also, you know, mostly been used to just working with middle school kids.
3: Well, I just think that's such a good point that you're making, Sarah about the, fr- the, it is so easy. And I, we actually had to like do a little bit of like, we've been kind of revising how we've been talking about empathy too, because Part of what I thought was empathy turns out to be conversational narcissism, mm-hmm. which we just learned about. And a shout out to your tweet, again, the one that made me sit back when you said, people don't listen, they just wait to talk. And yeah. I was thinking about, I thought about that. not It fits really well with conversational narcissism, which I used to, used to masquerade as empathy for me because I'd be like, I totally know how you feel. Right. Here's my story about it. And I was just in a situation uh, with a teacher who's like, well, the way that I use empathy with my kids is I'm like, I know when I'm in your situation, I do X, Y, Z. And I was, that's such a go-to for me too, but that's not actually empathy because you're missing that step, that fancy word you're saying, proximate. Well, that came to me about like that sort of listen
1: to like, don't want to talk is because, you know, middle school kids will just tell you basically right in the middle of your response to like, shut up (laughs) like if they're (laughs) if they're telling you something you know so like I started reframing the way I was saying it because I would do that I would say like oh yeah I remember this with my friend and like middle school and like one of my kids was literally like you know, basically, she said, "Can I finish? Let me just yeah. let me just tell you the story." So then I started trying to like reframe things, like when you're coming to me with this, do you want me to just listen to the whole thing and then like ask you questions or find connection with you or give you my thoughts, or do you want me to just like be quiet and listen? Right. I'm sort of giving them the ownership of the conversation there.
2: I think that what um if we could revise this section of the book right now, which unfortunately we can't. I think we might switch to say that we use the phrase "me too," which is uh, loaded in a different way now too, but I think we would also talk about how you can connect and really make a person feel heard without using that conversational narcissism and that, that feeling like this is a human experience can be developed by asking questions and by asking them to say more about their own moment and there's more to connection just then to saying yeah I have the exact same thing going on in my life
3: you do you do
1: talk about it though I mean you do say like you're you're sort of getting proximate as I think you guys say something like getting down like kind Mm -hmm. of on their level you do that the whole body listening thing right like getting down on their level and like doing that and that I think non-verbally signals to kids I've had to do a lot more like getting down on one knee just in terms of height you know and that actually and it's true it changes everything you know as opposed to like me towering over like a four or five year old and so Mm -hmm.
3: sorry when you were talking about talking to middle schoolers and they're like can I finish one of the things that I was like asking myself I wasn't just waiting to talk I was listening and thinking (laughs) about how sometimes it's like how do you know you're actually listening there? We in mindset for learning, we talk a little bit about these like three conversational moves people make that are like, you think you're having a conversation, but you're actually not. And um, it's from the, this book called how to stay sane. It's like, you can interact by people in a me, me way, which is like, I like this. So you'll like this. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a me. And then like, I control you. So like, I want you to do this. So I'm going to do this because I think I can control your actions that way and then there's me ghost which is like I'm talking to you you're like someone I've met before so like oh you're just like so and so sometimes I think that's where like it's easy to get a little lost right like we listen enough with kids to like almost just like get the gist you know like oh this sounds like a problem that like so and so had so let me just like try to talk you through the same way or like I really need you to get to lunch right now so I'm gonna say the thing that I'm gonna get you there as opposed to actually listening and accepting when like kids like I just was talking about how a kid once was like you're so annoying and I was like so deeply offended that anyone could consider me annoying. And then when I was talking to someone about it, they were like, Well were you annoying? And I was like, (laughs) kind of, but like what's but like I don't know. I am talking around the fact that actually listening, you have to do a couple of things. You have to like clear your mind of everyone who came before you and clear your mind of yourself. So when a kid's like, can I finish or like, you know, you're so annoying. Your empathy doesn't shut down because you're like in self-preservation.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And then later we both talk about this. The harder, the hardest times this is, is in your classroom. Like things are moving, things are shuffling. You're trying to get this done when things are like heated or difficult currently every day if you watch the news (laughs) things are heated and difficult you know or when you're talking you're talking about with kids but then when it transfers like out of the classroom we're asking kids to like sort of use these strategies as they go out the door like then like where does that toolkit of empathy go things are heated in conversation or there's controversy and like whatever media we're reading or listening to I guess with kids then whatever we're modeling for them is like hopefully the things that they're taking out right so like checking their bias like the kid who told you was you were annoying like you know your very kind friend saying well were you right because they're asking you to sort of like pause and reflect on that asking questions and actually like admitting you don't know and sort of willing to like step up to this like learning stance as opposed to being like oh yeah i know i've been paying attention to this it is like in our vision statements and mission statements and it's like on all these banners and like colorful character posters all over school but like That's not necessarily the message that kids are getting from us as
3: adults.
0: Well, and sorry, you actually juxtaposed that with a 2014 study where it said 80 percent of students ranked achievement and happiness over concern for others. And I thought that was kind of an interesting juxtaposition, because while you're saying putting the mission statements, we're not it's not making its way to the kids.
1: That was um, Harvard Graduate School of Ed, and they did that Making Caring Common project. So the study was something like the children we were meant to raise or meant to raise or something, and it was about the real messages that adults were sending. So it was like ten thousand kids across every type of school, and um, they ranked achieving over happiness, and they also ranked like hard work over fairness, right? And so the irony is like care and like fairness and empathy and compassion are like written all over these things that we have like surrounding these kids, but They're getting a mixed message because that's not what we're living because what's driving our days like scores and levels and data and awards and (laughs) rankings and grades. And this time of year, especially, we're thinking about all of that, you know, admissions. And so, like, why is a kid going to respond on a survey like that? Like, oh, God, yeah, I really do value caring over others and happiness. But meanwhile, I have to get into this school with this number and I'm at this level and I'm a red or I'm a blue or I'm 18. (laughs) I'm not a nice kid. Like no, you know, we don't always talk about kids that way.
0: I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by this conversational narcissism, and a little scared that I've probably done it a lot myself. So I kind of want to come back to it just a little bit and just wonder. Sorry, you mentioned specifically about you know being busy, and Christy, you mentioned trying to get kids out the door to a certain hour and sort of recognizing that. So how do we stop in the moment, or can we, it, to recognize we're being conversationally narcissistic or not recognizing the fact that we should be more empathetic in this moment and also be modeling that empathy and also be teaching that empathy. How do we, how do we monitor that in ourselves?
3: Essentially conversational narcissism shifts the focus of the conversation back on the person. So the way it goes is like having a really bad day. Oh, I'm sorry. So am I. Or like, really? Oh, me too. Like I make that move in texts all the time where I'm like, you're having a bad day. I'm going to tell you about my bad day. So you don't feel as bad about your bad day. One of the examples was like, my shoes are killing me or something. And the other person being like, Oh God, I know me too. My shoes are like the worst, you know, like, do you know, do you know that like move, like we make in conversations. And the idea is that you don't move away. You support whatever they say. But what's weird is like when someone's like, Oh, my shoes hurt. I don't know why it feels so weird to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, tell me about why. Like, what could you do to make it better? Or like, you know, like- I know, like you like wanna one up their foot pain or something. (laughs) Or by like saying like, oh my gosh, me too. That's like, oh, we all have hurt feet. I know.
1: I don't know. I don't know why it feels like that either. <laughs> Christine, any thoughts about?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that it it's it was probably rooted in like a place of wanting to connect and wanting to say, like, I know how you feel. You're not alone in this. Like, this is, this is part of the human experience. I've been there too. And so I don't think that it's necessarily rooted in a bad place, but I just think that it's, a bad pattern and a bad habit and I agree that I have definitely been this person and this was a huge eye-opener when I read it but Christy wrote a a really great blog post about what this looks like in the classroom and not just in the language we use, but also in the broader sense of empathy when we're thinking about how we make plans and how we respond when a child says I need more time or what kind of responsive curriculum we're using and so I think that it's really easy to constantly be thinking that we're doing the right thing by trying to connect and trying to be supportive and do all these things, but in the end it sometimes is just the shift response is just doesn't make the person feel like they've been heard as much as a, a more
1: supportive response. I'm well, sorry, I'm writing like everything Christine's <laughs>
2: There's also it seems like there's a, a book that uh we should read called we need to talk how to have conversations that matter by celeste hadley Hadley. Mm-hmm. that seems like it would be an
1: interesting thing to dive more into as well there's that's a trend in in literature now the we need to talk the difficult conversations one is now in it's like 10th mm-hmm. or something, 11th print there's one called crucial conversations you know it's like all over it's because like none of us know how to yeah. have conversations
3: and with yeah, i mean that's what it, i feel like that's why well sorry just to give another shout out to your book that's why your book is so helpful We all think that we're showing empathy when we're saying like, I hear you, that like that alone, it's like surface. It's like, I I heard them, therefore I demonstrate empathy. But like, how do you actually understand where someone's coming? I mean, I think that's like, you know, when you're reading, one of the things kids have to start doing is text it harder is like when it says like, so-and-so is walking down the street, you can't picture your own street. You know, you have to picture the street of the character and that's like a really big jump for some kids because you'll be like, what does that street look like to you? And they like describe the street they live on as opposed to the street in the story. And I think that's like people, people have empathy that on their street. I think what your book does is like helps you be like, there's other streets. Here's how to see them.
0: Sorry, this feels like a really good time to sort of reintroduce the concept you wrote about, about social comprehension. This feels like a good way to kind of connect that.
1: It actually, when Chrissy's talking about just the reading, I'm thinking about empathy as like a process and not a product. And so when I was writing about this idea about social comprehension, I was like, okay, so here we are like ingrained in like this learning and studying and teaching of all these reading comprehension strategies and kids are constantly you know we're asking them to make connections and synthesize and ask you know ask questions along the way and so then there's these other pieces about when you're out in the world and like Kristen Zubke talks about reading the world when you're out there reading the world like this is a process too of comprehension strategies and skills right so they're just social comprehension strategies where i'm out and i'm observing my world i'm looking at myself in this world and how that actually instructs and sort of defines the way i see others um and the way i respond to the world around me so like again like i i I think I talk about this in the book or I said it in a podcast, but a lot of teachers, you'll you'll hear people do this like, oh, I got this book because empathy or I got this book mm-hmm. for empathy or things like that. And like, yes, in in a way, like the doors and windows and mirrors thing is absolutely so important for kids. In addition to this process of empathy and getting proximate and like it's empathy is not like this causation thing where like, you know, you read a book and like empathy spits out. (laughs) You still have to go through all those processes that you do when you're when you're reading a book that Christy's talking about, right? And so you're comprehending along the way. And I think the most important thing is lies in the fact that you have to be a little bit vulnerable to ask questions. Yeah, a book that I just finished reading, um, The Girl from Aleppo. Have any of you guys read that? No, not yet. So um, it's about a a teenage girl, Nguyen, who she's in a wheelchair because of um, a condition she was born with and she has never left the house ever up to her teenage life and she had to leave Aleppo and that was the first time she left the house is to become a refugee and like travel nine countries and like months and her sister was basically like pushing her but like as much as you feel for refugees and you're reading this media and all this news about refugees and you're seeing the tweets and you're seeing the images I could not actually feel Mm-hmm. until I read her words writing her story, right? And that's why I think this whole Own Voices movement is so important. Like this yeah. was not a BBC reporter reporting on new genes. Mm-hmm. This was her writing her story about her travel and her experience as a refugee. I'm going off on a tangent about that, but I, I, I just couldn't, I, I didn't feel proximate until I listened to her and read her. So that's sort of where i met with social comprehension. I, yes, I you know, have my feelings and thoughts about refugees and immigration, in the US and in other countries in the world. But like, I didn't get proximate until I got to read her story and hear her talk about her story.
2: That story brings up something that I read recently that I kind of wanted to forget about and close the tab and not look at anymore. And that was that researchers have been studying um, social ostracization and what the physical visceral effects are, if you feel like you're, you know, not in a community that you're like, you don't have the sense of belonging. And we're probably not the right ones to talk about all the neuroscience of empathy. But I find that fascinating as well with the fact that we're kind of wired for connection and belonging and have mirror neurons. And anyway, um, one thing that they were talking about is that you're more likely to have empathy for your community, whether that's your classroom community that you've built or you know a broader community, and that was both you know reassuring that it's great that we're doing all this work to build community, but it was also terrifying that, w- that without a social toolkit or without this social comprehension instruction, you know, it leaves some big gaps for not having empathy for um, mm-hmm. other people. And so I think really taking that head on and and giving students tools and giving ourselves tools makes it even more important
1: yeah so i just i i I just want to keep like reminding myself that i I have to look at it as a process like with kids right you're constantly working right a a sense of empathy not like i don't know what it is like to be a refugee i cannot put myself in her shoes like i just cannot do it but i can like through reading her words i'm in that process it's not a product Mm -hmm. that i'm coming out with as a result of reading her book
3: i think talking about as a process makes a lot of sense In terms of like, A, you're never done with it. But B, you're never actually, you can never actually be empathetic towards everyone ever. But in knowing that it's a process, you'll always strive towards it. It's just like such a shift of like mindset. I mean, I think that's also like a forgiving way to look at it as well, which is that like, because it's a process, you're constantly refining and cycling back and striving towards it. The same way that if a growth mindset is believing your skills can be developed is is an empathy mindset. The one that I believe the skill can constantly be developed. Do
1: you guys think there's like ever a time in someone's life where like that ship has sailed at an age in life, they can no longer like go through that process, go on that journey?
3: Well, I have Mm -hmm. to say this thing from How to Stay Sane. The author talks about how they found that people who aren't used to hearing good news don't develop the neural pathways to process good news which doesn't mean you can't it just means you have to intentionally process good news out loud and often in order to learn how to do it repeatedly it's like you just like if i wanted to learn how to like play the violin there has to be like intentional practice and i would have to imagine that if empathy has its own set of neural pieces i think everyone could develop it but it's like you have to have the moment where you're like I'm working on developing this. And that's the part where I'm like, I don't know if everyone's on board with that idea.
0: So something that Christine and Christy, you both write about in the uh, toolkit that you have on empathy in the book, time is the very first thing in the toolkit. And that feels like a really important thing to sort of focus on how everything that you've all talked about, you know, sorry, you kind of mentioned it can kind of sort of feel a little overwhelming in some cases if you're not careful, but Small moves, big moves, things that take time. We have to be patient with ourselves. How important are are these things in terms of how we approach it in terms of not sort of jumping into it all at once or making it manageable?
3: It seems odd to have to justify why we need empathy for each other. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's the outgrowth of not having it. Like we think, oh, I can teach kids to have this thing that I'm not practicing, but the implicit messages you're sending all the time about like cutting up a kid's story or having the answer before or telling a kid the thing they're worried about they shouldn't be worried about. All those little moves we make from a good place of like trying to be like, I'm trying to make the day run. I'm trying to help this kid is sending those dual messages. So like, I think just waking up and having your thesis statement, like today I will work on my process of empathy and I'm going to reflect on the moments at the end of the day is like, it has to be prioritized in our, in our mind for it to also bleed into our actions.
1: When you guys do that. I was actually having a coaching conversation with a teacher at school last week, and I opened up to your um, schedules that you have the schedule examples in there. And I I basically said like, look at the empathy for the kids in this schedule, understanding of the kids' feelings and perspectives throughout the day. You guys talk about it all the time that kids should be moving all the time, how we should create the space for them. But even in your schedule, like, right, It's not like this human story, but there is a human story that lives through that every single day, right? There's 28 of them, or. 30 35 of them or 60 if you're in certain districts in our state and so or in our country and so I think it's it's more but I don't know if this is what you were talking about but creating time yes but then like your time your whole day with kids is that responsiveness to that process of empathy with the kids because you're actually creating time through your structured and unstructured time with them to have those moments. I've been doing a little bit more thinking. Christine, you brought up about like the neuroscience behind it and being more empathetic towards people in your community, which is true, right? We often respond positively to people in our community, and for a lot of folks, that means people that look only like you. And so that's why I talk a little bit about echo chambers because my community at school now is sort of globally, international, diverse community by by numbers. You have to think about actually what empathy looks like. I'm in the space right now, not everyone needs to be, but I am, and I'm looking at empathy sort of cross-culturally. There's this journal, Cross-Cultural Psychology, (laughs) that did a study on empathy across 63 countries. It was fascinating to me because they talked about the fact that empathy relies on collectivism and agreeableness and like how conscientious the society is and personal self-esteem and then sort of the pro-social behaviors of that country, meaning like volunteering and donations. I can't remember when the study was from, it was from a few few years ago, but. You know, the number one country on that list was Ecuador. And I was like, I want to go to Ecuador. I want to see what they're doing in Ecuador, you know, to make it. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because we had a, um, we had a International Women's Day celebrated at school um, not too long ago. And, you know, the girls are out there like rocking their stickers and their t-shirts. The guys are too. And a couple of the boys were talking to my soccer players and the girls came running up to me during lunch and they were like, oh, Miss Sara, the boys keep asking like, why we have International Women's Day and like, when's Boys International? day and stuff like that and you know, you kind of want to quip like well because every day is guy's day you know like and things like that when kids come up to you if you're feeling sort of that it's snarky about it but you almost want to catch the kids in like that act of noticing and observing you know and like Mm -hmm. started talking about time but like helping to take that question and those thoughts to like reframe their questions like taking time in your class to do that that's a Mm -hmm. conversation just like on the periphery that you can take back into your classroom and like maybe reframe it from when is you know international boys day or international men's day to like why is there even a need for international women's day or Mm -hmm. women's month or black history month and like all of these things that's where I stand with time I think you, you have to sort of make the time for it especially when things like that pop up in your day
3: well and in the early childhood setting one of the things that i think we makes it a little bit easier is that the social studies curriculum is basically like you Mm. and your family yeah community especially like when you watch kids at play and and stuff you get you hear those questions like being played out you know as they're trying to negotiate like you know who gets to drive the car or you know, and and a kid will be like, well, dad's drive, right? Or like kids who are like, no, you have to have parents. You can't live with anyone but parents. I think even before time comes the soft landing position that I think your book helps people face a little bit better, which is that like the questions are going to, be difficult and it's going to feel uncomfortable it's a it is the process of like this child said something about how you have to have a dad and a family right rather than just shushing or being like you know no right that's not how you develop empathy and i think the bigger work that comes out in some of your works are is like it's a replicable process when i encounter something that's new to me how do i like i learn a way to respond to that that's that's like with an sort of like an open stance as opposed to a different bad stance, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the process
2: of empathy and and Christy and I have also been talking a little bit post-publication date about different types of empathy. And it seems just like it's a hard time to be, it's a hard time to be in this world and there are hard conversations. And, it, and we've learned more and more about like, you know, there's emotional empathy where you're really feeling like, you emotionally are feeling the same feelings. And I know that when you do that in a classroom of 20 or 30 or 60 students, and it's just so physically draining day after day, and in, especially in our world as we are right now. And then we think about cognitive empathy, which I think leads us to a lot of that dismissal and thinking about like, okay, well, yeah, I get it, but you know, I'm not going to really go there and conceptualize that feeling, but I, I can't approximate if I'm using that word correctly. And so then as, as a teacher, I think a lot about trying to build some compassionate empathy. And so I can connect, I can venture down the emotional road a little bit, but not completely be drawn in. And because I think that this is in the world of education and the world that we live in, I think this process of building empathy and, and reflecting on your empathy is really important. But I think we also need to give ourselves and students tools for making it a, a long process and a sustainable process as well.
0: My thanks to Sarah Ahmed, Christine Hertz, and Christy Morales for their time today. You can learn about their books, Being the Change by Sara Ahmed, and Kids First from Day One by Christine Hertz and Christy Maraz by visiting Heineman.com. And while you're there, visit the Heineman blog where you can find video interviews with the authors, more podcasts from them, as well as sample chapters and study guides of their books as well. Be sure to follow all three of them on Twitter. Sara can be found at Sara K. Ahmed, Christine is at Christine underscore Hertz, and Christy is at Maraz Christine. Okay. We'd love for you to comment and review the Heinemann Podcast so more educators can discover it. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.